put that play on there. Cool. <laughs> hey, it's 7 a.m. on the West Coast, 10 a.m. on the East Coast of America. Oh, the song's over. 2 p.m. in London, 7.30 in Mumbai, India, 11 p.m. in Kyoto, Japan, and in Malaysia, it's 1947. I'm Jay Sheldon. I'm not wearing pants. And welcome. Welcome in across all four live platforms, Facebook Live, YouTube, Twitch.tv, and our good friends at Rumble.com. Thank you, Rumble, for the great audience over there. We really appreciate you guys. And be sure you hit on that uh, subscribe button wherever it is up there. It's free. doesn't cost you anything. helps the show out a lot. Thank you for that. And same thing on Facebook and YouTube, of course. Subscribe or follow. <clears throat> appreciate it. All right. It's a... Uh, is it a Wednesday already? It is Wednesday, the 16th of March. We're halfway through this month already. Yeah, yeah. We got lots coming up, including the fact that this hell on earth we've just spent two plus years going through was predicted a long time ago and in a very weird way. We'll have that story for you. Coming up right now, we got this, though. Miko update. Yes, it's the little Miko update. Miko's doing great. Uh, no problems. She's eating well. She's going for nightly walks. And she's having a blast with her Kong. This is... Uh, <laughs> remember I told you about the Kong? Well, this is a Kong. And we filled treats in it. And then... She's so timid, though. Look at that. She just... If you're listening on the podcast, check out the video. Uh, she's just very gentle with it. She also has horrendous uh, attention deficit disorder. The moment anything is like, ooh, look, a squirrel. So, yeah, she's she just <laughs> whatever. So you got to kind of encourage her. No, Miko, the treats are inside the Kong. You got to go get them. So, yeah, that's uh, that's how she kind of figures it out. And sometimes she just barely touches the thing. It's like, grab it and shake those treats out of there. There you go. <laughs> anyway, yeah, she figures it out eventually. She rolls it around until one or two fall out. And then she goes at it. So there you go. Miko and our treat Kong. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Uh, that's our Miko update. We also have our book coming up at the end of the show. We'll do another chapter, chapter 29. It's a long chapter. We might break it up into two parts. We'll see how it goes. All right. If the thumbnail didn't get you, the story will. From uh, Actually, there's two articles because there are two different books. This is so weird. It's You know, we don't do a lot of controversial stuff on the show. A little bit. Usually in the beginning, the first thing we talk about. But this is related to something that is controversial. Uh, this, however, is not. Uh, it's from the World of Buzz. The link is in our show notes if you want to check out the whole article. But a book published in 1981. 91, 2001, 30 over years ago. Predicts the coronavirus outbreak 
in 2020. And the headline says, we're shocked. Actually, it says we're shook. (laughs) But it is absolutely true. A book published in 1981 might just have predicted the pandemic outbreak the world has been going through for the last two over years. Uh, SCMP recently posted an article about how a book called The Eyes of Darkness, that's the title of the book, it's a novel. It talks about a Chinese military lab that creates a virus as part of its biological weapons program. It gets weirder. This is 1981, folks. The virus in the book is called Wuhan 400, which points to the COVID-19 that first originated from Wuhan, China. Could it be a pure coincidence? Could the author have written a prophecy 39 years ago? Dean Kuntz, The Eyes of Darkness. There is the book. Uh, He writes about a mother, Christina Evans, who goes on a journey to find out if her son Danny is still alive or if he died during a camping trip. She then manages to track him down to a military facility where he's being kept after he was accidentally injected with a man-made microorganism created at a research center in Wuhan, China. This is a novel. Now, excerpts from the book show the conversations between Christina and a man at the lab where her son was being held. This is from the book. I'm not interested in the philosophy or morality of biological warfare, Tina said. Right now, I just want to know how the hell Danny wound up in this place. To understand that, Domke said, Dombey said, you have to go back 20 months. It was around then that a Chinese scientist named Li Chen defected to the U.S., carrying a diskette record of China's most important and dangerous new biological weapon of the past decade. They called the stuff Wuhan 400 because it was developed in their RDNA lab just outside the city of Wuhan, and it was the 400th viable strain of man-made organism created at the research center. That's quoting from the writing in the book, The Eyes of Darkness by Dean Koontz. It is eerie how much of this story virtually came true 39 years later. Insane. Uh, Lawyer Albert Wan, who runs the Bleak House bookstore in San Po Kong, says the uh, Wuhan has always been known as a site of numerous scientific research facilities. Uh, Smart, savvy writers like Kuntz would have known all this and used a bit of factual information to craft a story that is both convincing and unsettling, (laughs) to say the least. And that's not the only book that fairly accurately predicted what just happened. What is happening? Sylvia Brown, written with Lindsay Harrison, a book called End of Days, Predictions and Prophecies About the End of the World. Well, check this one out. This is from thesundaily.my. And uh, this was written in 2008. 
not as long ago as the Dean Kootens uh, novel, but well before 2020. This is from the book. In around 2020, nailed the year, spot on, in 2008. The book says, in around 2020, a severe pneumonia-like illness will spread through the globe attacking the lungs and the bronchial tubes, and resisting all known treatments. Almost before baffling, almost more baffling than the illness itself will be the fact that it will suddenly vanish as quickly as it arrived, attack again ten years later, and then disappear completely. Funny they didn't mention the Ukraine war because, you know, that seems to have made the virus disappear. But yeah, I, there it is. A book written in 2028. Uh, Sylvia Brown, American author, may have prophesied the outbreak 12 years ago, wrote the book, and uh, it was co-written by Lindsay Harrison. She predicts the outbreak of this respiratory-related illness that will wreak havoc around the world, she even says in 2020. Brown was a fixture on American talk shows and claimed to be a medium with psychic abilities. She passed away in 2013. How weird is that? Very, very strange. There's more info there in the article if you want to check it out. The link is in our description down below, our show notes. So you can, whether you're watching on the video or you're listening to the podcast, uh, you can just click on the link. It should open in a new window. And um, you can read the, the articles. One from uh, The World of Buzz about the Dean Koontz book, which is really freaky. And the other one is actually meant to be a book of predictions. And uh, that was uh, from Ms. Brown, Sylvia Brown. And uh, boy, she nailed it too in 2008. Two very weird mm, coincidences, maybe. <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> oh, man. All right. This does not really apply to anyone except for the in the US hold on it's coffee break time however <clears throat> the big thing these days of course is the price of gas now that's being uh, affected almost everywhere across the planet and uh, at least petroleum dependent countries and the US is absolutely insane it's 5 6 7 bucks a gallon uh, I don't know how that relates to liters, and I'm too stupid with math to figure it out, but uh, I think our petrol here for 95, what did I see? One ringgit, 97 sen at one station, that's per liter. So the USD to the ringgit is about 4.2 to 1, 4.2 uh one ringgit, let's do it the other way, 4.2 ringgit is worth one American dollar, one USD. Liters and gallons, way over my pay grade. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's cheap here. Um, but in America, it ain't cheap, and it's getting worse. And the prediction is it's going to get even worse as that moron in the White House keeps 
doing everything he and his cronies can to screw things up. And everybody's talking about buying electric cars. <laughs> Did you stop to think where the electricity to charge the batteries comes from? No, you didn't. Well, Matthew Valenti made this post. It's a public post. I put the link in the show notes. And uh, it's brilliant. It's a bit long. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But let me just highlight a few of the parts here. Batteries do not make electricity. They store electricity, which is produced elsewhere, primarily by coal, uranium, natural gas-powered plants, or diesel fuel generators. Uh, so to say that an electric vehicle is a zero-emission vehicle, not at all valid, really. Also, since 40% of the electricity generated in the U.S. is from coal-fired coal plants, it follows that 40% of the EVs on the road are basically coal-powered. You see? Einstein's formula, E equals mc squared, tells us the same amount of energy to move a 5,000-pound gasoline-driven automobile a mile as it does an electric one. Same amount of energy. The only question, again, is what produces the power. And to reiterate, Matthew says, it does not come from the battery. The battery is only the storage device like gas tank in a car. And then he goes on to describe types of batteries, the cost of replacing batteries, the insanity of these electric vehicles. So when you think, no oh, electrical vehicles save the planet, solve the climate problems, uh, not so true. I, it's, you see, this is a very long, long article. So he winds up by saying, going green may sound like a utopian ideal, but when you look at the hidden and embedded costs, realistically, with an open mind, you can see that going green is more destructive to the Earth's environment than meets the eye, for sure. Very long article, but filled with fantastic information. So before you jump on this whole electric vehicle garbage, please read the article with an open mind. Open it up a little bit, read the article. I think it will also open your eyes. It's very well written and very interesting. Check that out. All right, what else have we got? From the sublime to the ridiculous. This from the Malay Mail. Victoria's Secret Truck leaves merchandise-covered section of highway after an accident. <laughs> uh, oh, this was in Kentucky. Closed down the road. Take a look at this. A truck carrying all kinds of Victoria's Secret merchandise crashed on the highway and its contents went everywhere. Now, for those of you who think of Victoria's Secret and you only think about bras and panties and sexy women's negligee, that ain't all Victoria's Secret makes. They do all kinds of body lotions and hair shampoos and, and liquid things. 
And that was also in this truck, which got spread all over the highway. So it was all mixed in with a mixture of body lotions and hair gels and bras and panties. Oh, man, what a mess. The article is in our show notes if you want to read it. But, you know, there's a joke about a truck crashing on the highway and and, and it's something to do with the contents. I thought long and hard, there's got to be a joke in here somewhere. There has to be a Victoria's Secret joke in here. Normally, I'm pretty good at wrapping my head around these things, but not with this one. So if you got one, stick it in the chat. <laughs> Look at this. What a mess. A section of Dixie Highway in Kentucky had to be temporarily closed after a crash left Victoria's Secret lingerie and toiletries strewn across the highway. Um, there were hundreds of bottles of lotion and loads of lingerie products as workers attempted to clean up the mess. And a Fox 19 reporter, a TV reporter, uh, was tweeting pictures showing the spilled lingeries and toiletries. And this is a quote from, uh, from this reporter, Lauren Artino. She said, honestly, not making light of this. And thankfully, there were no major injuries. But it smells like a shampoo, body wash, and hairspray out there. Like a flowery, powdery smell. <laughs> I can't imagine. Oh, man. That is just... I mean, it's a horrible story because it's a terrible crash, but no major injuries. Nobody was seriously hurt. Except for a whole bunch of bras and panties and body lotion. <laughs> I told you we cover the weird stuff on this show, and I'm just proving it to you, bringing the receipts. All right. We also cover the amazing people. And I've got one story, our uh, our last story tonight before we get to our book. Wow. Uh, we have some incredible kids across this planet, and we just don't give them their due. Uh, when they do the amazing accomplishments that they achieve, uh, one of the things that this show likes to do is to give them a little tip of the hat and a little publicity and, and say, good on you. Well, check this out. A 17-year-old student discovers a new planet on his third day of an internship at NASA. Seriously. 17 years old. Wolf Kukir, a junior at Scarsdale High School in New York, got a two-month scholarship with NASA during his junior year. So he went to NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. His first task was to investigate fluctuations in star brightness acquired by NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS, a part of the planet Hunter's TESS Citizen Science Initiative. The Citizen Science Initiative lets people who don't work for NASA assist in the discovery of new planets. Well, this guy, 17 years old, his third day on the job, it's not even a job, it's an internship, found a new planet. NASA made the announcement on their website after validating the teenager's work, submitting a paper co-authored by Kukir for scientific review, 
and announcing the finding of the planet, which is now known as TOI 1338b, during the 235th American Astronomical Science Society Conference. 17 years old, he said, I was looking through the data for everything the volunteers had flagged as an eclipsing binary, a system where two stars circle around each other. And from our view, eclipse each other about every other orbit. Three days into my internship, I saw a signal from a system called TOI-1338. At first, I thought it was a stellar eclipse, but the timing was wrong. And it turned out to be a planet. 17 years old, discovered a planet. Man, they should have done part of the name after him. He discovered it. Anyway, congratulations and a hearty hi-ho. This guy, man, I'm telling you. You imagine being 17 years old, discovering a planet? That is just the coolest thing ever. Wow. Amazing. All right. <laughs> uh, let's see. Yeah, book time, isn't it? All right. Let me just do a couple of clicks here so we know where we are. And we'll get on with uh, Tom Sawyer. We read classic books on this show. It's from the Gutenberg Project, gutenberg.org. Links in our description down below, our show notes. And um, you can go over there and find all kinds of classic books. We have done tons of them, from The Wizard of Oz, Peter Pan, Christmas Carol, The Little Prince, Alice in Wonderland, all kinds of great books. And uh, we're doing The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. It's a very long book. We're on chapter 29 tonight. And uh, it was written in 1876 by Mr. Mark Twain. Uh, one note, we always start books like this with this warning. Uh, this was written in 1876 at a time when some of the words in the book were perfectly appropriate. Today in 2022, not so much. That includes the N-word, which is used in this book. It was appropriate in 1876. It is not now. However, we are reading the book exactly the way Mark Twain wrote it. If that sort of thing offends you, then you might want to find something else to do for the next 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, so, having said that, We'll move up and move on to chapter 29. We may break this in two parts. Let's see how it goes, because it is a very long chapter. Well, the first thing Tom heard on Friday morning was a glad piece of news. Judge Thatcher's family had come back to town the night before. Both Injun Joe and the treasure sunk into secondary importance for a moment, and Becky took the chief place in the boy's interest. He saw her, and they had an exhausting good time playing hipsy and gully keeper with a crowd of their schoolmates. The day was completed and crowned in a spectacularly satisfactory way. Becky teased her mother to appoint the next day for the long-promised and long-delayed picnic, and she consented. The child's delight was boundless, and Tom's not more moderate. The invitations were sent out before sunset. Straight away, the young folks of the village were thrown into a fever of preparation. 
and pleasurable anticipation. Tom's excitement enabled him to keep awake till a pretty late hour, and he had good hopes of hearing Huck's meow and of having his treasure to astonish Becky and the picnickers with the next day. But he was disappointed. No signal came that night. Well, morning came eventually, and by 10 or 11 o'clock, a giddy and rollicking company were gathered at Judge Thatcher's, and everything was ready for a start. It was not the custom for elderly people to mar the picnics with their presence. The children were considered safe enough under the wings of a few young ladies of 18 and a few young gentlemen of 23 or thereabouts. The old steam ferry boat was chartered for the occasion. Presently, the gay throng filled up the main street laden with provision baskets. Sid was sick and had to miss the fun. Mary remained at home to entertain him. The last thing Mrs. Thatcher said to Becky was, You'll not get back till late. Perhaps you'd better all stay at the night with some girls that live near the ferry landing, child. Then I'll stay with Susie Harper, Mama. Very well, and mind and behave yourself and don't be any trouble. Well, presently, as they tripped along, Tom said to Becky, Say, I'll tell you what we'll do. Steady going to Joe Harper's. We'll climb right up that hill and stop at the widow Douglas. She'll have ice cream. She has it most every day. Dead loads of it. And she'll be awful glad to have us. Oh, that'll be fun. And then Becky reflected a moment and said, But what will Mama say? How'll she ever know? The girl turned the idea over in her mind and said reluctantly, I reckon it's wrong, but... But shucks, your mama won't know, and so's what the harm. All she wants is that you be safe. And I bet you she'd uh, say go there if she thought of it. I know she would. The widow Douglas's splendid hospitality was a tempting bait. It and Tom's persuasions presently carried the day. So it was decided to say nothing to anybody about the night's program. Presently it occurred to Tom that maybe Huck might come this very night and give the signal. The thought took a deal of the spirit out of his anticipations. Still, he couldn't bear to give up the fun at Widow Douglas's. Why should he give it up, he reasoned. The signal didn't come the night before. So why would it be any more likely to come tonight? The sure fun of the evening outweighed the uncertain treasure, and, boy-like, he determined to yield to the stronger inclination, not allow himself to think of the box of money until another time of day. Three miles below town, the ferryboat stopped at the mouth of a woody hollow and tied up. The crowds swarmed ashore and sued the forest distances and craggy heights echoed far and near with shouting and laughter. All the different ways of getting hot and tired were gone through with, and by and by the rovers straggled back to camp, fortified with responsible appetites. And then the destruction of the good things began. After the feast, there was a refreshing season of rest and chat in the shade of spreading oaks. And by and by, somebody shouted, Who's ready for the cave? 
everybody was. Bundles of candles were procured, and straight away there was a general scamper up the hill. The mouth of the cave was up the hillside, an opening shaped like the letter A. Its massive oaken door stood unbarred. Within was a small chamber, chilly as an ice house, and walled by nature with solid limestone that was dewy with a cold sweat. It was romantic and mysterious to stand here in the deep gloom and look out upon the green valley shining in the sun. But the impressiveness of the situation quickly wore off, and the romping began again. The moment a candle was lighted, there was a general hush upon the owner of it. A struggle and a gallant defense followed, but the candle was soon knocked down or blown out. And then there was a glad clamor of laughter and a new chase. But all things have an end. And by and by, the procession went filing down the steep descent of the main avenue. The flickering rank of lights dimly revealed the lofty rocks almost to their point of junction, sixty feet overhead. The main avenue was not more than eight or ten feet wide. Every few steps, other lofty and still narrower crevices branched from it on either hand. For MacDougall's cave was but a vast labyrinth of crooked aisles that ran into each other and out again and led nowhere. It was said that one might wander days and nights together through its intricate tangle of rifts and chasms and never find the end of the cave, and that he might go down and down and still down into the earth, and it was just the same, labyrinth after labyrinth, and no end to any of them. No man knew the cave. That was an impossible thing. Most of the young men knew a portion of it, and it was not customary to venture much beyond this known portion. Tom Sawyer knew as much of this cave as anyone. The procession moved along the main avenue some three-quarters of a mile, and then groups and couples began to slip aside into branch avenues, fly along the dismal corridors, and take each other by surprise at points where the corridors joined again. Parties were able to elude each other for the space of half an hour without going beyond the known ground. Well, by and by, one group after another came straggling back to the mouth of the cave, panting, hilarious, smeared from head to foot with tallow drippings, daubed with clay, and entirely delighted at the success of the day. And then they were astonished to find that they'd been taking no note of time, and that night was about at hand. The clanging bell had been calling for half an hour. However, this sort of close-to-the-day's adventures was romantic and therefore satisfactory. When the ferry boat with her wild freight pushed into the stream, nobody cared sixpence for the wasted time but the captain of the craft. And that's where we're going to wind up halfway through chapter 29 tonight. Huck is going to come in in the second half of this chapter. So 
Stay tuned for that. <laughs> In Mark Twain's Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Cool beans. All right, guys. A little short show tonight, but that's okay. We had lots of good stuff jammed in there. And uh, thank you so much for your likes and follows and subscriptions. We really appreciate that on uh, Facebook, YouTube, Twitch.tv, and, of course, Rumble.com. Do check us out on Rumble, our entire library. 189 shows are over there. Uh, Also on YouTube, so be sure you subscribe on all those uh, different platforms. And to all our podcast listeners, thank you so much. Hundreds of downloads every week we get, and we really appreciate it. We love you guys. Thanks for subscribing. Appreciate that. All right. I will see you again on Saturday night. Enjoy the rest of your week. Until then, I'm Jay Sheldon, and... I'm not wearing pants. Good night. Snort. <laughs>